Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak, and I'm here with Peter Singer. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. And you? I'm very good. Glad to have you here. And I had an introduction that was mainly based on your bio before. Uh, and I could describe the, the 50 books that you've done, the appearances at all these major institutions, the influence on, that you've had on influential people like Bill Gates and people like that, and large numbers of people, uh, for, including myself. I just did, I re- did a recent post on you uh, before I knew that you were going to be in New York City. But I'm going to talk about, I saw you speak last night. Uh, you spoke at Cooper Union on the same stage where Abel Lincoln and Frederick Douglass have spoken. And I have to describe some of the things that happened there. And I think that'll be a more personal description for people who haven't heard of you uh, or don't know your stuff in that much detail. All right. You got a standing ovation when you went on stage and you got another standing ovation when you finished. I don't know. I know a few professors who get standing ovations when they talk, but no philosophers. Not that I don't know that many philosophers. During question and answer... At the end of, of your talk, one of the people said he came down from Connecticut just to ask you one question. Then afterward, there was a meet and greet and in, in another room. And so in the line to get there, there's a woman next to me that we were just kind of chatting. And she said that she has been waiting and wanting to talk to you since 1990, which coincidentally was the last year that I ate meat in no small part because of you. Uh, also, then in the meet and greet room, there was a woman that I talked to and I said, you know, what brought you here? And she said, you were the greatest role model in her life. And I asked why? She said, because you were behind all of her major life decisions. The guy that you did the fireside chat with on stage, AJ Jacobs, has been a guest twice on this podcast. And despite all this, you were very humble because you were talking about your role models and people that you worked with, and you described them as, as just on another level from you. And at the meet and greet, I asked you, uh, I'd asked you a question during the question and answer when you were on stage. And it's a question that a lot of people, when I talk to them about it, and it's about personal behavior in the environment, that a lot of people just get very, the emotions get very intense and they don't talk about it. Uh, it's very difficult to talk about. So I've learned not to talk to people about it, including family members. And your response was both calm, thought, well thought out, and also personal. And I don't get the chance to talk to someone about that. I think that you enjoy and are very skilled at, and tell me if I'm wrong, at speaking about these things, but thoughtfully, rationally, not cold. And actually, when I, as I walked back from the microphone, two people who were also in line said, that was a great question. And then several people in the Q&A and the meet and greet also said that they liked that question and started engaging me on it. And uh, so I, I asked you and you said it was okay if we could focus on that one question for this conversation. So um, before we do that, I wonder if there's stuff that you usually say at the beginning. I mean, I'm sure you get asked a lot at the beginning of podcasts to say your background. How do you usually introduce yourself? Uh, well, firstly, thank you for that uh, introduction, which I, I think was very good. And I'm very pleased with the responses that you got when standing in line to wait to meet with the people whose lives I've influenced, because it is really important to me that philosophy is relevant to people's lives. Uh, when I started studying philosophy as an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, nobody really would have said that. It was more a matter of clarifying our ideas about things, but not not practical, not ideas that are really applied to the way we live our lives. And I think that is the point of philosophy, and it, it certainly used to be if you go back to ancient Greece and Socrates and his dialogues, uh, but uh, it lost that. And and if that's come back and if I've helped to make it come back, uh, you know, that's very fulfilling for me. Uh, now, you asked how do I usually introduce myself? Um, you know, most straightforwardly, um, I'm a professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Uh, and I'm the author of a number of books, of which uh, Animal Liberation is probably the best known, first published in 1975. And of course, on this tour that I'm doing now, I'm promoting the completely revised, renewed version of the book called Animal Liberation Now. But I've also written a number of other books. Um, I won't run through them all, but my uh, book, Practical Ethics, has been very widely used as a philosophy textbook. And so many generations, it was first published in 1979, so many generations of philosophy students have read it and some have been influenced by it. Um, 
I've written a book called The Life You Can Save, which is about global poverty and what we ought to be doing. Uh, when I say we, I mean people who are middle class or above in affluent countries ought to be doing about it. Uh, and that led to the founding of an organization called The Life You Can Save, which eventually bought back the rights to the book from the publisher and put it online so you can download it free, either digitally or as an audio book from thelifeyoucansave.org. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've written on a number of different topics, but maybe that's enough of an introduction for me anyway. Um, and I'll look forward to the questions that you want to ask me. Yeah, and I will also put in the links uh, in the notes links to your page, which links to a lot of stuff. I mean, there's plenty of videos of you online. There's plenty of articles that you've written and about you. So, uh, interested listeners, there's lots of stuff that you can get on Peter. Uh, and I also have to say that you've been named like most influential of various different categories over over the years as well. I think you you interact with a lot of influential people, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, to some extent. Um... So I've been called the most influential living philosopher, which, um, you know, I'm pleased with, but I'm a bit sad for philosophy. <laughs> there should be many philosophers as influential as I am. Um, yeah, uh, I've received a few awards. I received the Bergeron Prize for Philosophy and Culture in 2021, um, which is some sometimes called the, the Philosophy Nobel Prize. Um, and the nice thing was it came with a million dollars, which I was able to donate to the causes that I strongly support, um, including global poverty, um, organizations helping to reduce global poverty, and organizations like The Life You Can Save, which exist in order to recommend that people give effectively and show them how they can get the best value for every dollar that they give to help people in, in poverty. Uh, and I also donated to organizations uh, helping animals, specifically helping to reduce factory farming, which I see as one of the great evils in the world today from many perspectives, from the perspective of the way it treats animals, from the perspective of its contribution to climate change and uh, the demand for products like soy and grains that it feeds to animals um, and therefore contributes to the destruction of the Amazon to produce more soy. Um and local environmental problems as well. So, so those are causes that I support too, and I guess they're also, in a way, part of the introduction uh, of who I am and what I'm doing. Um, they're the things that I think I really want to change. And by the way, that award is the one that Martha Nussbaum was a guest on this podcast uh, a few months ago, and she also won that. I think is. Are you in touch with her? Do you know her? I know Martha. Yes. Um, is. Did you? Yeah, I think that might be right. Um, so, uh, yes, that, I think that is right that she did win it um, a year or two before me. Um, and her latest book is on is on animal rights. Yes, her latest book is called Justice for Animals, um, yeah. and it uh, it presents an approach which is comes from a different ethical uh, starting point from mine, but ends up in terms of criticisms of our treatment of animals as being. You know, largely overlapping. So we we both agree that factory farming is is ethically indefensible in in the way that it treats animals, um, and a lot of the other things we do to animals as well, including their use in research is, uh, in my in my view, not in absolutely every single instance, but is overwhelmingly in the type of practice that it is um, is indefensible. And I agree with that as well. Uh, I've been vegan for quite some time and vegetarian since nineteen ninety. Um, all right. So also, so what you said a little bit before also segued into the question that I asked. So I pointed out how you, uh, the effect on the environment of me, of fact, of say factory farming is, is a major factor in your considerations as, as I understand. And when I think of the, something affecting the environment, I also take the next step of saying, and that affects sentient creatures, humans and non-humans as well, and causes suffering and misery that now meat eating is not the only thing that causes that. There's lots of other things that range from small things like uh, taking a car when one could take public transit or walk or bike up to buying SUVs when, say, for cars necessary, buying an SUV when a smaller, more efficient car would do up to, I mean, there's flying and then there's just wanton waste of stuff. I mean, a lot of people do things like, 
just for fun that, that pollute a lot. And so pollution as well as uh, depletion, I mean, a lot of ag agriculture, whether for meat or not, depletes aquifers and, um, and leads to uh, rivers running dry and things like that. And so I asked, well, commenting on, on myself at one point, I had a moment that for me was like the moment you've described of when the guy uh, in line, I think it was in 1970, asked if there was meat on the, on the, in the sauce in the pasta dish. And when he found out that there was, he got the salad instead. And I had a moment like that where I learned how much pollution flying caused, where I led me to at first challenge myself to go for a year without flying. But as that year progressed, and, and before I did it, I thought it would be the worst year of my life because I thought my family would disown me and I might lose my income and all sorts of other things. But as the year went on, I, I liked my life more without the flying. And that led me to conclude never to fly again. And in a, in, in a very similar process of, of, of stopping eating meat, although different. And I asked you your thoughts on this. And you gave an answer. And I'm curious if you, if you wouldn't mind answering again. And if you're up for talking about it for a while to talk about that question. Oh, and, and also I said that flying is one proxy. There's lots of other behaviors and on a, on a scale of, of impact. And we don't have to stick with flying, but that's one. Yes. Um, so it was a very good question. Uh, I agreed with your point that flying is damaging to the environment. It's, uh, I'm sure it's, it's a large part of my carbon footprint uh, that I do fly. Uh, it's something that for me, it's really very hard to avoid because um, I teach at Princeton University, but... I am Australian. Uh, when I was invited to take up the chair at Princeton University in 1999, I had three children living in Melbourne. Uh, they had all grown up and left home, and uh, at least two of them then had partners. Uh, they were not about to transform their lives and uh, come and live in the United States with us. So it was not a question of the family moving to the United States. The family was staying in Melbourne. My wife moved with me, but the extended family was staying in Melbourne. Uh, she had a brother, I had a sister and so on. And it was always understood that we would come back to see our family. So it was either a choice of not taking that position in Princeton or taking the Princeton and flying, um, you know, at least annually back and forth. Uh, I decided to, to do that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm aware, as I said, of the harmfulness of, of flying, and I try to minimise it. But on the other hand, um, as a, a close friend, uh, an American, advised me when I was discussing whether to take this position, uh, he said, "Being a professor at Princeton gives you a big megaphone. It it means that what you say is is noted and amplified." in ways that it is not if you stay in Melbourne uh, and also would not be if you were at a less well-known, less prestigious university in the United States. Um, and that was a factor that I you know, I was aware. So in 1999, I had written books. I had put forward ideas. But um, the uptake of those ideas in the animal movement, it was significant. But um, in terms of the global poverty issue, it wasn't very significant at that point, and you know, I wanted the, I wanted these ideas to be better known and to have more influence. And going to Princeton was a way to do it. So I felt that that was justified in terms of um, the additional carbon footprint that I would have by doing that. And I think my friend was right. I, th I think I have become much better known and much more influential over the twenty four years that I've been in Princeton than I was previously and than I, that I would have been had I stayed in Melbourne. Now, so, so that's a kind of, a, I think, a justification for, for flying in, in that respect. Um, but I'm not claiming that I am as pure as you in not making any flights that are not justified in that way. Um, I do fly occasionally for, for recreational purposes, say, within Australia so that we can be in other parts of Australia when my wife and I want to, uh, have a vacation, uh, go hiking somewhere that's different, see see Australia's uh, tropical north 
um, which is a totally different landscape from where we live in the southeast in Melbourne. Uh, and that's difficult to justify. Uh, I can buy carbon offsets for the flights, but I'm aware that offsets don't really fully uh, compensate for the damage you're doing. You know, when we buy offsets, we, we pick the low-hanging fruit and it means that the next offsets get more difficult. There's more more expensive things to do as more people are buying offsets. And it doesn't really solve the problem. We we do have to get to net zero, um, and we have to do that by reducing fossil fuel emissions and reducing emissions from, from our raising animals, predominantly methane. So um, I'm not perfect is, is, is the final answer to this. Uh, I, I don't claim to be a saint. Uh, I never have. Um, and this is one of the imperfections in what I do. Um, I'd like actually to, to go back and, and ask you if, if you are not flying at all now, this means that you stay within uh, North America, say, um, or do you travel to, to, if you want to go to Europe, say, or some other part of the world, do you travel by boat? Uh, I know Greta Thunberg famously sailed. I'm sorry about that. You're probably hearing this phone, which is not, not my phone because I'm staying with friends. And this is an extension phone. I didn't hear it, but no problem. Oh, okay. Um, okay, let me let me go back then. Um, so I'm uh, I'm wondering about what what the limits are on your life because of not flying. Does this mean that you stay in North America, um, or does it mean that you take a boat if you want to go to Europe? Uh, I know Greta Thunberg famously. Uh, used a sailing boat when she came to address the United Nations about climate change. Um, not everybody's going to do that to cross the Atlantic. Uh, how does it restrict your life? I'm glad you asked. It, well, how does it change my life is not necessarily strict. Or I've also found in many places in life that constraints breed creativity. So the and it, it, there's also a big process here that also happened with going from stopping eating meat to being vegetarian to being nearly vegan for quite some time and then finally cutting out cheese at the end. And when I first started, I had no idea. Uh, and actually, right, like almost the week I chose to start, my sister who lives in Queens and she had, she's like, hey, Josh, want to join me and the family? We're going to go to Japan. I found some round trip tickets to Tokyo for $800. And I thought $800 round trip Tokyo, that's really cheap. I don't think I'll be able to find that again. And my sister lived in Japan for some time. So she's got a Japanese family that she lived with and she is fluent. So it would be an amazing trip. And my first thought was, I'll just start my week, uh, my year when I get back. And then I thought, no, <laughs> I know that I'm always going to be able to find reasons to keep going. And so I, so not to the happiness of my sister and my nieces and nephew, but, and, and brother-in-law, but I didn't go on that trip. And I started finding that a lot of what I thought I was going to get value from in traveling by flight, I was able to get in other ways. And it took a while for some of them to kick in. Things like cuisine and adventure, I was able to find without flying at all. And I found that actually flying inhibited those things. It gave kind of packaged things that weren't really my discovering them. Whereas if I cook with only local ingredients... As one example, this is not the biggest thing, but just one thing. I found that I got more in touch with local cuisine here, meaning, um, well, I don't want to go into too much depth, but it eventually I, and I didn't, I, I guess eventually I started liking it and said, let me go for another year. Let me go for another year. Let me go for another year. And eventually I made it permanent. But each time I kept finding more and more solutions to things that I thought were problems and then realizing I kept thinking things like, well, people haven't flown for 300,000 years and no one flew before about 100 years ago and they weren't miserable for it. So I started and there were, one big realization I had was that when I was flying around a lot, I guess there, there are too many places in the world for me to see, speaking just about the travel part, or I could talk about relationships with people that I want to spend time with, be they family members or business people or friends. There were too many of them for me to see all at once or in, in my whole lifetime. And I had to accept that I couldn't do all those things. And when I did that, I stopped feeling like I had to go see and do all those things. And I had to limit it to the most important ones. 
And then I would choose which I did. And that would mean mostly within bus or train distance in the US. Then when it really hit me, am I ever going to see, the, say, the Eiffel Tower again? Then I started taking sailing lessons. And that changed my perspective on sailing because I'd grown up thinking that's what like the Kennedys and rich people do. And then I realized that's what people have been doing for something like five, 10,000 years, not 10, but five to 7,000 years. People have sailed. And actually, I, I want to go on the record as having taken those lessons before Greta came across because I did make connections in the sailing community. And someone told me about that trip before, like someone who knew Herman, um, uh, what's his last name? Uh, the the guy the the boat sail the skipper of the boat and uh, who who took her over. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know the name, but uh, never mind. Boris Herman, I think. Yeah. And so I met I met her boat when she arrived here and and spoke to her briefly. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think no one has offered to take me across yet. I have not yet crossed the Atlantic or the Pacific. I think middle aged men don't get the same attention mm-hmm. on the social media and in, in the news that that Greta does. But yeah, I do expect that it's possible I'll never get off North America again. It's possible that I'll make it to Europe because the Atlantic is much smaller and it's right here from New York. But I do believe that if I only get to cross once every decade for the however many decades I've left, I think that my total travel experience will probably be equal to if I flew across whenever I felt like it. I've also taken the – I took a train to give a talk in Salt Lake City and that was 48 hours each way. And then I went to a conference in LA that was 72 hours there. And I, and I took a, – a, on the way back, I, I stopped at a couple of places. I took – like I stopped in um, Houston, Atlanta, uh, New Orleans. And that was really quite a, a, a wonderful trip. And I knew that I would have 72 hours there and more than that on the way back. So for several months leading up to it, you know, a lot of people think, how do I put this? I had to go through all this challenge, all these challenges that I don't, I don't give proper um, depth to, coverage to, of how I prepared for these things because I felt like giving up so many times. I don't know. That was a long answer. I, I, mm-hmm. I could go on. Did that answer your question? Yes, it did. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can see that. I can see that that's one way of living. And I totally agree with your view that. Uh, a constraint can actually be a spur to creativity because I, my wife and I strongly felt that when we uh, stopped eating meat back in 1970-71 that uh, we had to learn a whole set of new cuisines because we both are the children of immigrants from to Australia from Central Europe. So we had this European-style, very meat-centered way of cooking and Really, if you want to have enjoyable, creative, uh, vegetarian or vegan cooking, you need to look at other cuisines as well. Uh, uh, you know, some of them are obvious, like uh, there's lots of pastas that can be produced vegan. There are Mediterranean foods like uh, falafel and hummus that actually we, we started looking at. That was a relatively new one. Um, Indian cuisine became much more important in our lives because there's a lot of Indian dishes which are traditionally vegetarian because they use ghee, but you can use alternatives uh, to, to ghee. So um, they can easily be vegan. Uh, I started making a lot of stir fries, um, started using uh, tofu and other ingredients in, in stir fries and really enjoying that. Uh, started doing Sichuan cooking because I like spicy food as well. So yeah, I, I really developed new skills. Um, we sort of my wife and I kind of have different cuisines that we specialize in, and that's fun. Uh, so I can see that, and I can see that that could work with regard to travel to some extent. But um, for me, the I guess the sacrifices would be pretty significant. Um, I spent uh, – my wife and I together spent four years in Oxford in uh, from 69 to 73, and we made really good friends there. And it would be sad if we couldn't see them again. Um and, and without flying, we couldn't. Uh, you may be keen on sailing. I, I get rather seasick, and I the idea of crossing <laughs> the Atlantic in a in a small boat does not appeal to me. I'm sorry, even if I did become a sufficiently skilled sailor to do that. Uh, so yeah, it really would mean um, you know, staying either around North America if I 
abandoned the family in Australia, but that's unlikely, I think, and my wife would not accept that. So it really would have meant not staying in Australia and not going to Princeton. And for me, that sacrifice would have been too much. And as I say, I, maybe I can justify it by doing good in the travel that I'm doing. Uh, now, for example, I'm, I'm traveling because I want to promote animal liberation now. I want to bring new adherence into the animal movement. I want to give more energy to those who have been there for a long time. I want to awaken people to the fact that these issues, uh, factory farming has not gone away. In fact, globally, it's got bigger. Um, and that actually raises another another trip that I'm thinking of making next year and I'm being urged to make by a Hong Kong-based friend who's also you know, has very similar views to mine about how terrible factory farm is, farming is both for animals and for the planet. And, you know, where is factory farming growing the most in the world now? Uh, the answer is China by a very significant degree. Uh, China is building huge factory farms, including uh, multi-story farms. There's, there's a 26-story pig farm now in, in China where every floor is just a large building. Every floor is packed with uh, thousands of pigs who never get to go outside or leave the building. Uh, and... Uh, my Hong Kong friend says, look, there are some people in China who are starting to think about this, some of them thinking about the environmental impact of factory farming, some of them thinking about the status of animals, but, but China really lags far behind the West in, in terms of its awareness of these issues. Uh, and he thinks that I could do some good by uh, touring China. Um, I can get invitations from leading universities to speak on this issue. Uh, and that would seem to me to be another trip that would be worth making, um, even if we look at it purely from an ethic point of view and put aside any enjoyment and interest that I would have by, by being in China and uh, visiting places that I haven't been to. At first, you were making me hungry when you were talking about the foods that you guys cooked, but then the China part made my appetite go away. Uh, it's really uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you when you yesterday when you were talking about the proposition in Florida, uh, in California that the the court there, no, the jury there decided in favor of, uh, against the industrial farming and the factory farming. And I wanted to ask if you had spoken to people who had owned the farms that did these, the farms isn't the right word, the factories that own these, the CAFOs, I guess, that own these things, like what their justification was. And, but I, cause I sometimes try to imagine it cause it seems indefensible and, Yet, as you mentioned, it's growing. But I, I wanted to talk about an observation I've had is that there's, there's, we could look at the flying as, a, as your personal flying and what you get out of it yourself and what you, to, to what extent you can improve the world. And then there's the general case of flying in general. And um, not everyone is you and not everyone has the impact that you do. Although I believe that most people would probably feel like their reasons are just as important for them as yours are for you. And I wonder if, if am I, am I right in saying that there's, there's your case and then there's the general case. And are you only talking about yours or are you also talking about the general case? Should everyone? I, I was talking about me really. And I think a lot of people fly for far less significant reasons, um, reasons that are essentially their own pleasure um, and that don't have an impact in improving the world. Now, um, as I said, I sometimes do that, but I do it far less and shorter distances. Um, and uh, I think we could we could have you know put trips on a on a sort of scale where we looked at the ones that were most defensible and the ones that were least defensible, and see where we are on that scale. So, for example, you know, here I am in New York, um, staying with some comfortably off friends who have um, other friends who are significantly wealthier than they are. And, um, you know, they tell me that uh, in winter, their friends will fly from New York to Phuket in Thailand uh, to get a bit of warmth and sunshine and sit on a beach for a weekend. And, you know, to me, that's, that's pretty horrendous because, uh, you know, to, to warm up for a weekend um, cannot justify flying to Thailand. Uh, it's a it's, it's a long trip. It's it's even you know if, it's much further than flying down to the Caribbean, for example, where you could also warm up 
Um, so why why go to Thailand? Well, you know, I don't know. It's somewhere different. I like Thai food, whatever it might be. Um, I don't know. So um, that seems to me to be at the other extreme of the scale, at least if we're talking about flying. Of course, I can think about even worse uses of fossil fuel, the, the, the billionaires who have these huge so-called yachts, which are certainly not sailing boats, um, that they go for cruises on or party on. I, actually, in one of my books, um, about which related to, to climate change and uh, global poverty, uh, I did some research on that. And uh, the amount of fuel that it takes to run one of those mega yachts that billionaires have for one hour with its you know engines on full uh would drive a standard car i think it was a volkswagen golf or something i used at that time um, i'm about to cry yeah, when you... it, it would drive it for um 275,000 kilometers i think if oh, i remember geez. rightly oh, man. a quarter of a million kilometers so like that's i don't know what it is 150,000 miles um yeah so yeah and Jeff Bezos has two, like one that follows the other, because one doesn't have a heliport on it. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so yeah, you know, you can always say there's somebody who's doing much worse than I am, even if you're flying to Phuket for the weekend. Um, so, I don't, I don't know uh, how you how you grade these things, but I, but I do think that flying for some significant purpose that might make a difference is more worthwhile than flying just for recreational purposes and uh you know you, you ought to you ought to think about how you can also have an enjoyable rec uh, vacation without um you know while minimizing your fossil fuels um if you look at it i should also say if we if we were to look at it on a policy point of view and think what are the options i'm i'm sure there would be options that go beyond sailing boats and in fact um you know getting a lot of people on a on an ocean going vessel is uh, more fuel efficient than flying on a per person basis, but um, is, is slower. And, and again, of course, there are these big boats that go on cruises, but they hold a lot of people. Um, but we could do things, I think, um, uh, sort of a, a lighter than air airplanes. These things we used to have airships that were filled with helium um, are much more fuel efficient than planes. They, they take longer, um, but uh, you know, not so long. And um, I think we are developing sufficiently powerful batteries that could run those engines that probably um, with a little bit more technology, technology and maybe using solar panels on the top of them, um, you would be able to do that without using fossil fuels at all. But, you know, so far, I guess people are not sufficiently convinced of the importance of the, of the crisis to think about that particular alternative to... The, the kinds of planes we have now, um, and there was I did read something also about about um, using batteries for the for planes of of the sort that are closer to what we have now. And apparently there are smaller planes that can be run for a number of hours on batteries. Not yet, I guess, far enough to cross the Atlantic, but uh, enough for domestic flights. So we could replace the fossil fuel domestic airliners um, with electric powered um, domestic airliners. Uh, probably in, in the next decade or so if we really wanted to make that effort. I'm really glad that we had this conversation and I'm, I'm seeing what I was missing in not being able to talk to people or when people get, I find people get defensive, then I get defensive or maybe I get defensive first because I often take a, a hard line of, in the, at some point in the future, we will not be able to fly, at least not with fossil fuels. And so, and also for most of human history, we didn't fly and people are fine with it. But maybe there are uses for flight that everyone would agree that's worth it. And I'm curious of where, if there's a line to be drawn, where the line would be drawn or possibly, I know that there are people talking about frequent flyer taxes so that when, if you, one or two flights a year, maybe there's less of a tax on it. But as you get to more and more, then it tends to be people, it's something like 1% of people are, are are responsible for 50% of the flights, something really outsized. Oh, that's dramatic, yeah. So a small number of people would have to pay a lot, and they tend to be very rich people or maybe rich corporations. So that maybe one doesn't have to draw a line but could make a graded uh, solution like that. With batteries, my understanding, I had a guy who was the chief engineer of a, an electric 
plane company, and they've won awards for their advances. But he was saying that across the Atlantic, not likely within our lifetimes, and if ever, and um, short things of 100, 200 miles with a small number of people as possible. And I don't think even – they're doing much more stuff of non-manned flight, which there seems to be a lot of potential for, especially for supplies to places that are difficult to reach by, by vehicles, by um, land vehicles. I know that for myself, you're talking about other ways of, of vacationing. And once I was forced not to fly, then I started finding lots of things – that were alternatives, including something so simple and basic that I think listeners might think, oh, that's, that doesn't even count. But like I went bike camping, you know, put a tent on the back of my bike or even day trips. The reason I mention it is because the life experiences that I had very unexpectedly were on the level of any trip that I took by plane. And I've also, it also seems that the different, when people talk about visiting different places these days, it doesn't seem like what travel used to be because I was reading a travel account recently of, of someone flying someplace. This is maybe 50 years ago. Uh, and then, then they had to take an 18-hour train ride from there. Then they had to keep going from there. But now you would just take a couple flights and you you'd get to where you wanted to go. And the culture that you find there has been homogenized. I feel like we homogenize culture on the scale over which we travel so that I'm, I would guess that in Phuket, they don't really see Thai culture. I mean, maybe obviously it's going to be different than here. No, I'm sure you're right. Here. I'm sure that it's basically you know, a city that's overwhelmed with tourists and Thai people who work for tourists, and there is no local Thai culture. There may still be Thai food. Um, and of course, which we get everywhere as well. Which we get everywhere as well. That's true. So I think you're right about that. It, it's very, you know, even within my own lifetime, um, I went to Europe uh, on a big trip with my parents who had come from Europe and they took me back with them to, uh, they come from Vienna uh, from when I was 18 in Australia. So that was 64. And um, yeah, that was a big thing and big deal. And we went to other countries as well. And there were very few tourists around and you got this amazing hospitality and warmth and so on. Um, You know, you go to the same places in Italy now and they're overwhelmed with tourists and, most of the people there are just trying to make money from those tourists and there's very little actual interchange with, with local Italian culture. So you're right about that. Uh, it It is very different and I think it's lost a lot and I agree that you can have wonderful experiences of in various ways without travel. Without you, flying. With, sorry, without, without flying, yeah, without flying. Yeah. Um, but, you know... You can't have all of the experiences clearly, and and uh, depending a bit where you live, um, you, your experiences may be more restricted. If you're living in somewhere like Australia, which is more homogenous in terms of culture, um, it does have a variety of landscapes, but let's say it has no really high mountains. So you know, if you enjoy hiking in mountains, you know you can't you can't get that without traveling to uh, maybe Nepal, perhaps, uh, or Europe, or North America. Um, all of those places. Uh, well, New Zealand, I guess, has some reasonably high mountains, which is closer. You could go there. And, uh, yeah, so there. It's. I think there are, there are different things at stake for different people, but I agree, going back to what you said earlier, uh, it makes a huge difference how important this trip is to you. And some people will fly when it's really quite unimportant, long distances. For other people, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experiences. So, you know, Australians, again, when I was younger, used to save up for their one trip overseas um, that they would make during their lifetime. And it would be a long time. They would arrange to take leave, long service leave. They, w- they would be away for months um, and to travel the world all on this one trip, maybe for a whole year. Maybe younger people would get a job and earn to support themselves so they could continue the trip. I think you know that's something which means a lot to people uh, and far more than the kind of you know routine, I'm, I'm going to Europe or I'm going to the Caribbean or whatever. Uh, so I think the idea of a sort of a frequent flyer tax um, that progressively increases when people fly more uh, would really make a lot of sense. And it would be a way of curbing this and the funds that were raised from it could be used uh, for offsetting as far as, as I said, that's not perfect, but it can contribute to preserving forested areas where uh, which would otherwise be cleared, perhaps buying them up 
and preserving them. And, uh, it could work if, if you could get agreement to do that. Then there's another, when you mentioned people in Australia, this is a total coincidence, but I just watched a movie called Walkabout, which I don't know if you've seen. Uh, from, a really old movie called Walkabout, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I, I have seen that. It's a famous movie, yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard about it. And then, and it was one of these movies where for the next week or so, every night as I was falling asleep, I was like thinking about different aspects of it, of, of how thought provoking it was. And one of the things that it, it, one of the things that my living, trying to live more sustainably has led me to is learning a lot more anthropology and having this perspective of how did people do things before. And so this guy on the walkabout, as one example of many, I mean, here I, I, I'm on Manhattan, so I think of people who lived on Manhattan for something like 10,000 years. They didn't have fossil fuels. Uh, and, oh, and then I've read how during the colonial period, when Indians and European settlers interacted, some Indians would live among the Europeans and even go to Europe, and some uh, settlers w would live among the Indians. And apparently there's no known case of Indians who stayed with the Europeans, but there are many cases of the Europeans who stayed with the Indians, implying that there was something about the Indian lifestyle that was preferable when people had experience with both. They chose one preferentially over the other. I'm not an anthropologist, so I might have misstated things there. But I kept thinking, like, what? could there be things that I'm missing in staying in one place? And... Uh, and that, that's led to me learning a lot more about how people lived here in a way that I feel like there's a lot to learn that flying keeps me from. And I know this is going to – I guess to someone who stopped eating meat, that's, gonna, that's probably going to make sense because I certainly appreciate vegetables a lot more now than I did before. I mean before I just thought, you know, cauliflower, broccoli, same thing. That's the thing that's on the side. Right, right. Usually overcooked. Yeah, with some big – sauce. yeah, too much sauce on it. Yeah. And well, at the time, I didn't think too much sauce. And so I started having this perspective of what am I missing and actually finding answers to those questions. I also have to throw in something as, a, as an aside here. Is that I, you talked about getting I, – I don't know if you mentioned getting seasick, but I do know that I did get seasick once when I was a kid and that might have kept me off boats for a long time. But I did learn that Darwin was apparently seasick for much of the trip of the Beagle. Wow. And That must I, have been a nightmare. Yeah. So I told myself if I'm, if I'm puking the whole way – which yeah. could happen. I will, and I, you know, when the when the GI tract is messed up, it like it's hard to think straight, and yeah. things are miserable. But maybe I'll try to to uh, channel Darwin. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't know that he. I mean, I do get quite nauseous even on planes if it's bumpy. I need to eat, chew some ginger or something, otherwise I I, I can end up throwing up, which is a bit unpleasant. Um, but uh, so uh, yeah, the, the idea of being on a small boat like the Beagle. And having to go around Cape Horn, which which he did, oh. uh, you know, <laughs> really horrible. Um, but I guess for science, uh, yeah. <laughs> he did a lot, and 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 he achieved a lot. So uh, I'm I'm sure it was all it was all worth it in the end. Yeah, without flying. Yeah, without flying. Absolutely, that's right. Because you know, but I guess yeah, people people took longer. It's a different sense of time, isn't it? That you could say, okay, I will go away, and he was you know leaving his family. I don't remember exactly whether he was. Married already at the time, but but leaving or had children, but leave, leaving family for a voyage that would take I don't know possibly a year um, uh, for all of those discoveries, uh, and and out of contact of course for a lot, <laughs> no emails for Darwin. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a different way of living, and it would be it's it would be hard to get back to it. But um, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be worthwhile and rewarding when you did. There was one other piece that also hit me is this the idea of influence. What influence can we have? And if we focus on food, I haven't, I haven't taken your perspective on it, your personal perspective on it. I don't have your, your uh, renown and influence. So it's been simpler for me, but I've, I've been invited to events where Al Gore was speaking and there was a, a big, this is one of the things that hit me. The emails were like, see the uh, former vice president, um, Nobel prize winner, Oscar winner, Al Gore. And of course, I, I, I didn't actually go to the events. They were a bit expensive, but I um, did want to meet him in person. Now, he's going to be a big draw. 
And I see big value in him being there to draw people there. As I cut down my flying, I started wondering, well, what if I do want to influence people on that scale? What if I become someone like Al Gore? Do I have to fly around? And I guess this is one of the examples of, of constraints breeding creativity is that what I started thinking was, could I be more effective if I federated this? If I, if I tried to train other, if I thought I could be influential in California, could I find someone in California to train and get them to be at my level, maybe even beyond my level, so that they could do it there? And every place where I wanted to be, instead of being personally a draw, could I instead, not federate, what's the word, um, deputize, you know, create yeah. and um, delegate and create local people with my skills that I could learn from, they could learn from me and so forth. Now, would that be faster, slower? I'm not sure. I, I didn't think it through all the way, but it is part of my strategy in growing a movement of people living more sustainably and finding the joy in it that um, I don't know if that would apply for you. Well, it, it might. I mean, it depends on what difference it makes in person. Uh, I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, rather than delegate to these other people, why not do these things over Zoom? Um, I think we've learned to do a lot of Zooming over the pandemic. Uh, and in my mind, it works pretty well, especially, you know, I, I've done many talks now over Zoom uh, rather than travel. Um, and if the institution has the proper facilities, they can put me on a big screen. Everybody in the audience can hear me well. Uh, and they can also ask questions because, uh, you know, there's different ways you can do the questions. Either they come down the front to a mic, which in fact they did last night at the in-person thing, and then then I can hear them perfectly well. Or you pass around a handheld mic, which takes a little bit longer to get to the people asking the questions. But um, I think that's a good substitute for traveling in most cases. But um, with this particular book, um, Animal Liberation Now, uh, I considered traveling because there was some media that I wanted to do that would only require to be in person. So some of the podcasts that I've done, they like to do it in person. So in Los Angeles, I did uh, Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. That's a, a large one with a big audience um, that does it in person. I was hoping to do um, Bill Maher's uh, TV program from Los Angeles as well. Um, they only do it in person. Unfortunately, the writers went on strike and they're not, were not doing the program just when I was in LA. So that was... a uh, significant disappointment um i've also recorded a, a ted talk about animal liberation now um which went out uh, virtually to ted members at the moment to the subscribers to ted um but they're going to edit that and then they will put it into their regular ted talks and hopefully like my previous ted talk it will end up getting well over a million views so that's a nice way of reaching people but you know, as I say, there are some things that can, they they want you there in person and you can get a, an audience in person that you can't otherwise. And for that, I think delegating someone else might not work because the people actually really want to see you. It's it's like the question of, you know, why do museums have to pay millions or uh, tens of millions of dollars for an original Van Gogh, whatever it is, you know, why can't you just make a really, really good reproduction of the Van Gogh and then you can say, you know, our museum has something that for everybody except that an expert is identical with uh, Van Gogh sunflowers or uh, the whatever it is, that uh, painting that you want to do. Um, but people say, no, I've got to see the original, right? I've got to see the painting that where Van Gogh himself applied the paint to. Um, and there's a bit of that with seeing personalities individually i think you know maybe that more people will come to an event at which i'm there in person and of course i can sign books when i'm there in person than where when i'm on a screen um and i'm not in person and they can't sign books in a way it's kind of uh, uh, you could say it's a bit silly but it does seem to me that that's that's where uh, a lot of people are yeah, in my case, that's not an issue. I don't yet have people who are saying I must see Josh in person. It's no substitute will will no one else will substitute. So it feels like there's there may be use there may be cases where flying is justified, uh, or I should say the the pollution that flying causes, the, the extraction, the depletion, the the displacing people and and other sentient creatures and and. Uh, 
non-sentient creatures, it affects these sentient creatures from their land um, that so I, it feels kind of like what you talk about um, very, I mean, this is a, maybe too much of a stretch, but um, what you said last night about, uh, I think it was oysters, that they're an animal. So if you if, if you say vegan doesn't eat any animals, then uh, I don't know. Is it, is it, am I making too much of a stretch? There's some things that would be a different category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We shouldn't have really what that's saying is it's not like there's an absolute rule. It's not like being vegan means uh, I must avoid any animal, consuming any animal product. Whether or not that animal is in fact a sentient being, is capable of feeling pain, whether or not that will have any effect. I mean, I mean, another example that I could have used is um, what about roadkill, right? Suppose you're you're driving along in, in Princeton. Uh, I don't actually have a car in Princeton. I use the train or I ride my bike locally. But um, still, I might even riding my bike down a road, I might come across a deer who's been freshly hit by a car, um, and let's say I. I have my knife with me and I decide to carve myself a couple of pieces of venison out of this deer and I know how to do that well. Um, and then I go home and cook it and eat it. Uh, okay, I'm not a vegan, obviously. Here I am eating meat. Um, but I'm, what harm am I doing, right? I'm doing, as far as I'm doing, zero harm. The, uh, the, the deer was dead anyway. The carcass would rot um, into the road um, or whatever. You know, maybe it would restore some nutrients to the soil where it lay, but... Uh, it's a bit of a stretch. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you, you've got to think of the point of what you're doing and whether something that seems to be a breach of the general policy is, in fact, contrary to the point of having that policy in the first place. So uh, that's why I, you know, I think eating oysters is, is also not contrary to the point of it, which for me is either I don't want to cause animal suffering, but I'm skeptical about oysters capacities for suffering and uh, i don't want to contribute to climate change or other environmental harms that the meat industry causes but oysters in fact are generally fairly sustainably grown and when they're grown in places like chesapeake bay they actually cleanse the water their their filters um the water goes through them and they have a beneficial effect on the water Um, and in terms of harvesting um there aren't really many other creatures that get killed uh, sort of accidentally in the process of harvesting them. Uh, and that is a problem uh, even for strict vegans in that uh, when grain or soybeans or whatever it might be, uh, legumes are harvested in a field by a mechanical harvester, there are going to be rodents in that field and they are going to be caught up by the harvester and, and killed. So there isn't any completely free, completely uh, in a way of eating that is completely free of causing any harm to non-human animals. So it's really a question of minimizing that harm rather than bringing it to zero. Yeah, the thinking of what the purpose is, is something that I don't think about so much. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'm sure in this conversation that I'm valuing this calm discussion and I also have to add that when you talked about the – say you do come across a deer, I, I don't want to go around in circles, so I, but I can't help making not a joke but a little observation because one could then say, what if you have found a dead body, a human body? Could you then eat it? And But I don't want to go in that direction because I'm sure you've done that many, many times. But I do relish the times every now and then when I get a cut and I lick my wound and I get the taste of blood. And in fact, human blood, but it's my own and it's – Causing it to heal faster. So I, I've done a couple blog posts on like the rare times I taste blood. Okay. Well, you know, you could always, just as you can give blood quite successfully and your body recovers from it, um, I guess you could get some technician to withdraw a pint of blood from your veins. Um, but instead of saying, drink it. <laughs> give it to the hospital, just say, but would you mind putting that in the fridge for me? I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll have it after my dinner. Well, I think I think my my understanding is that saliva has stuff in it that causes wounds to heal faster—not wounds, but uh, cuts to uh, scabs to form faster. Uh-huh. So I think it's healthy to do it. I, I, I could certainly it certainly makes sense um, adaptively. Yeah, it would. And there's also a video I saw actually for a TEDx talk that I gave remotely uh, in it was in England, and uh, someone else, one of the other people, gave a talk on on. Oysters and their filtering ability. And there's this video of like two tubs of water 
or two um, terrariums, uh, aquariums of water. And in one of them, there's, I was thinking some oysters and the other is not. And they put in this really murky water and in really fast, the oysters turn the murky water clear and the other one that doesn't happen with. Right. Which is just that it's, oysters are a positively good thing and we should be eating them in order to promote oyster farming in uh, polluted areas of the bay, of, of bays, right? Well, certainly that we should not wreck the, we shouldn't undermine their ability to grow. Yeah. yeah and right. now for the purpose, most people, when I talk to them about the concept of not flying, will talk about family members that are distant or a flying distance away. They never talk about the reason they're flying distance away is because of flying. But this, they, they always talk about the flight to the person, not the flight away. Mm-hmm. But and, and the other big thing is work. And to them, their feelings about seeing family and their feelings about earning money to, to buy food and, and, um, and have shelter, they're as important to them as anything. So, and I'm sure that this resonates with some things about people saying why they want to eat meat, but is, is, how do we distinguish between something that's, that I, I would certainly imagine a president of a nation traveling to other nations, that's probably something that would qualify, especially if like war is looming. Mm-hmm. Whereas if someone has uh, like a third cousin somewhere and they want to go for a party in, in Phuket, maybe that wouldn't qualify. But to them, maybe they, they, maybe they feel like it is a, it's, it's so important. How do we distinguish between these things? Well, well, but, but yeah, actually, I think you made a really interesting point there that sometimes things happen in distant places because of flying. And they wouldn't otherwise because people would not accept jobs on the other side of the country if they didn't think, oh, yes, I'll be able to go fly back and see my family. And that is a different way of living. And I've noticed as an Australian that Americans are much more likely to have their children living, their adult children living far away from them and to have to visit them. Um, And in Australia, that's quite unlikely, perhaps because we have fewer cities in Australia to go to. I'm not sure. but uh, so as it happens, my situation when I'm in Melbourne, I can actually, we have three daughters and I can walk to all of them. Two of them are really close. I can walk to them in five minutes or less. Um, one of them, I would have to walk for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, uh, and of course, if I ride a bike, I'm there in 10, 10 minutes or something. So, uh, you know, there are habits about about. What are your priorities? Um, and I know my oldest daughter, who's, who is an academic, she's a, a linguist. Um, and to some extent, she could say she it was not a, a, as advanced in her professional life as she would have been if she'd prepared, been prepared to take jobs elsewhere in the world. Um, fewer opportunities came up in Melbourne than might have been in other cities, even other Australian cities. But that was her choice. She, she wanted to be close to her sisters um, and to us. So... Uh, yeah, it does make a difference. And the other thing I mentioned here in terms of, um, you know, going to events is there is this, it's, it's a relatively new thing to me, um, destination weddings, right? That, uh, you know, let's say you live in Melbourne. This has happened to us, Australian friends. You know, some, a cu- the couple live in Melbourne or all their families um, and close friends live in Melbourne, but they don't get married in Melbourne. They want to travel to, let's say, um, a town on the Great Barrier Reef, which is, um, or, you know, near the, the Barrier Reef, which is three hours away um, by plane uh, from Melbourne. Or maybe they even want to go to somewhere, another country to do it. And then, you know, everybody who wants to be at their wedding and feels close and they should be at their wedding is then obliged to fly as well in order to, for this event. And, you know, that's something that I, I do think should be regarded as, as a, uh, an unethical decision to make to to arrange your wedding or whatever other event it is that 50 or 60 or maybe even 200 people are going to want to go to um, in a way that means they're all going to have to fly somewhere, whereas you could have held it at, at an attractive location uh, that they could easily get to without flying. Yeah, I could imagine that if flying – let's say some true cost accounting showed that it was way more expensive than people thought or this tax came in. I could imagine a lot of people, there'd be like this period of everybody moving back 
I mean, there'd be, there are difficult cases where if uh, an American marries a French person and they can't fly, they can only fly like once a decade, do they choose to live in America or France? But these are the challenges of life. I mean, the alternative, if, if, if the results of them traveling all the time is people are suffering, that it makes the choice deliberate rather than imposing it on others. There's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there are cases where there is a, a genuine hardship if you don't fly and cases where you have choices. Um, I saw a, uh, just before I left Melbourne, I saw a play that was written. Um, I saw because it was a family a little like mine uh, who had come from Vienna, a Jewish family, um, and uh, one part of the family had gone to Australia. Um, but this the, the, the sister of the woman who had gone to Australia and started a family there had uh, gone to France and had managed to survive despite Nazi occupation in France. So she was in Paris. So um, they were separated um, during the war. They didn't know that each other was alive, really. Um, after the war, they found each other. But it was not until the 60s that they were actually able to be reunited in person because um, they neither of them could really afford to fly from, from Paris to Melbourne uh, to have a reunion uh, that was then you know, relatively much more expensive. So people managed like that. I'm, I'm sure it was a hardship that they could only write letters. Um, they couldn't hug. And of course they couldn't even zoom, but um, if you just, you just accept that and you stay in touch by writing letters. I think we're over time and uh, I would love to continue this conversation and go on to new places from here. Uh, I, it's painful not to keep going. <laughs> right. Okay. I think uh, we'd, we'd better terminate for today, but um, maybe some other time we can we can revisit, come back to it. I'd love to. And uh, I'm sure there's no great way to end the conversation, but there's anything to, to close with that we didn't cover in other areas? Well, I'd just like, you know, in, in a way, as I say, I'm on this tour, I would, I would uh, like to close it by inviting people to pick up the new version of Animal Liberation if you're interested in some of the things we've been talking about, especially the way we treat animals, the ethics of how we ought to treat animals, uh, the current state of factory farming and what we can do about it. Uh, I think that's a, a really important issue. And in a sense, that was what I was looking for when we contacted you and said uh, I'd be available for an interview. Um, so... Do think about that. Um, if you want to know more of my other work, actually, there's a also a recent publication uh, just from April is a new edition of a book called Ethics in the Real World. And we have been talking about ethics in the real world. Um, that uh, is short essays, mostly op-eds that I wrote about uh, a, a wide range of different ethical issues. Well, I hope that our conversation did add to those things in that to for those who aren't familiar with you, your, your work, the thoughtful consideration that that you bring uh, the depth and the and the comprehension comprehensiveness and of course i've been vegetarian since i mean it was you and francis moore lepay whom i've heard you talk about I, I, mm -hmm. the, those um she's been on the podcast too of uh die for a small planet where like hers was like the practical yes and yours is the more philosophical and i think they pair together very well yeah, certainly. I mean, she she made the point that uh, it's it's really wasteful to put animals uh, in factory farms and grow grain to feed them. That we waste most of the food value of the grain, and it's not at all uh, a solution to feeding a growing population, as some people say, as a kind of excuse or justification for why we have factory farms. But it's it's just the reverse of the truth. So um, Francis Moore Lappe did a, a great service with Diet for a Small Planet in making us realize that. So I hope everyone immediately picks up your book and reads it. And I can say from experience, vegetarian followed by I took a while to get to vegan, but now it's so much easier. So much easier. Oh, I forgot to make my joke. I told a couple of people this last night and they laughed. Uh, I was thinking of asking you in the, in the Q&A, where do you get your protein? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know yes. if it's too much of an inside joke for listeners who aren't vegetarian. That right, because it's because <laughs> a lot of people still think it's a serious question, right? When there's yeah. just uh, so much protein around uh, in plant-based foods, uh, and 
uh, at least for adults, uh, you know, might be slightly different for growing children and different for pregnant women or nursing women. But for the rest of us, uh, you know, protein is, is not really such a problem. It's easy to get uh, a lot of protein. You don't need a huge amount of protein. Uh, and uh, there are a variety of things that you can eat from legumes, obviously, beans, lentils, and so on, of rich in protein, uh, tofu, um, and soy products are rich in protein. Um, and uh, oh, well, there was something else. Sorry. Oh, peanut butter, items like that, uh, nuts, nut butters. Uh, it's not really a, problem, a serious problem for most people. Now you're making me hungry again. Okay, good. Uh, Peter Singer, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Good to talk to you. Bye. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.